Welcome to Trust Company Talks with Bill Noble and Burke Coons. Good morning, and welcome to a special Christmas edition of Trust Company Talks with Bill Noble and Burke Coons. How you doing, Bill? I'm doing outstanding, Burke. How are you today? I'm doing all right. Never better. Never Good. Better. Well, we're here with a very special friend of ours. Uh, we're here with David Wood. Ira David Wood III, uh, to many of you, um, Executive Director of Theater in the Park. And uh, we are delighted to have him in this morning to talk about all things theater in North Carolina, and uh, especially on the eve of, of his uh, final um, production this year, his 50th production, sort of-ish, of, the, uh, of his long-running success, A, A Christmas Carol, uh, originally written by Charles Dickens. And uh, but we're going to cover a lot of stuff today, and we're I'm super excited about it. So welcome, David. Thank you. It's good to be here. Excellent. And this coffee is wonderful. <laughs> Great. At this Great. hour of the morning. Yeah. yeah. This is, most actors are going to bed about now. Right. No. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, I'm glad you actually brought that up. I, I wanted to talk as someone who aspires to you know, write and be somewhat creative, even though I work in a, you know, the drudgery of the invested business, I guess you could say sometimes. T- talk about, I mean, talk about your day. I mean, how do you begin? I mean, first of all, you're, you're an author. You're an actor, you're a producer, you've, you've done so many things, you know, Lost Colony has written how many books now? Four. Right. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in knowing how or learning how you manage your day. <laughs> I mean, how, how you're that productive and, and, uh, and, and, you know, the longevity of it. Just talk about, talk about your process. Well, uh, Malay once said, the person that owns the creative gift possesses something of which they are not always master. Mm-hmm. So I don't manage my day so much as my day manages me. <laughs> We're familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, it sort of tells me where I need to be. And um, uh, the mood I'm in at the time, my day will start at 4 a.m. generally. And I'm up. That's quiet time at our house. I guess it's quiet time at anybody's yeah, home. Some houses. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's the time I get up and, and do a lot of my creative work uh, in terms of writing and thinking, I find that taking some quiet time in the morning and just thinking about the day ahead and kind of placing things, putting things in place in your mind helps me internally organize, if that makes sense. Right. And so I have a game plan about how I'd like to spend the day. And then, of course, it all changes right. sure. once you step outside the door because things happen. But um, to have a game plan, I think it's a great way to start the day. Right, right, yeah. In, in our business, our the game plan tends to go out the window at yes. about at about seven thirty in the morning. But, yep. uh, but yep. no, that's that's interesting. So, do you do you write in the mornings in your quiet time, or, or you read, or I guess it kind of I depends. write, mm-hmm. I write. That's a good time for me. I'm fresh, and uh, I, I just find that the words come easier in the morning when I'm fresh, mm-hmm. as opposed to nighttime after. A, a nice single malt. I just, right. you know, that's when I read and put my feet up. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, excellent. Well, I'm I'm sitting in the room with with, with two natives of Rocky Mount. So, uh, so I, I, Bill, I know that you're proud proud of the Rocky Mount heritage down there. Yeah, I was I was fascinated when I saw that you were you were from from Rocky Mount. But more importantly, he he grew up in Enfield, North Carolina, which I saw. Which to to our listening to our listening audience. Um, Enfield is a very small place in eastern North Carolina, but there have been more unique individuals that I have met in my lifetime 
to come out of Enfield, North Carolina, is truly amazing to me. Some of the characters that have come out of there. Uh-huh. And when I when I saw that you were there, I said, "Well, that doesn't surprise me at all." I mean, uh, that you uh, you hail from such a unique little community like that. Talk a little bit about growing up in a town like. Enfield. Oh, that was a special time and place. I go back there in my mind often. It was a time and place where so many of the men had come out of World War II. Mm-hmm. They came home. They married their sweethearts. They raised their families. They had the 2.3 kids with mm-hmm. the split-level home and the cocker spaniel named Snoopy. I mean, it was the American dream, and they had it. And we got it from them, the security mm-hmm. of growing up in a small town where within the bounds of those city limits, you were Absolutely safe. Mm-hmm. I had teachers who had taught my dad. Wow. So you couldn't get away with anything. Yeah, they yeah. knew you inside yeah. and out. It was a family, um, an extended family. You went out to play, and you didn't come home until the streetlights came home. Yeah. My mother had a dinner bell, an old farm bell uh-huh. that came from her farm when she was a child. And we put it up in our backyard, and the neighborhood mothers would call my mom when they needed their sons or daughters to come home, and they would say, Betty, will you go out and ring the farm bell? Because wherever we were, anywhere in town, Uh you could hear that bell. And when that bell rang, that meant get home, Uh and we'd jump on our bikes and and head home. But those were the days, you know, the summer nights with the— Fireflies, or we called them lightning bugs, sure. when our parents would be grilling steaks on the weekend, and we'd be playing freeze tag, kick the can, oh, yeah. out on those summer evenings. And um, it was magical. You could hear the laughter of your parents uh, gathering you know, together. And there was a security that I think a lot of people today are missing out on, um, but it was wonderful. It was it was when we believed in things. I just wrote recently about when Santa came to Enfield. You know, that was that mm-hmm. frosty day that he would <laughs> arrive on the on the um, fire truck. Oh man! And that was a special. It was a Saturday, always a Saturday. Yeah. He'd come rolling in, and the moms would uh, you know clean us up and put us in the car and take us down to meet Santa Claus. And this was a Big deal. He was bigger than Elvis, mm-hmm. even though we didn't mention that aloud to Southern Baptists, right. you know. <laughs> but we knew he was. The, it was a big deal, and he was coming to Enfield, which right. was very special. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a reverent kind of thing, man. When that fire truck rounded the corner, and he was sitting up there in that red suit. But the thing that was so incredible was that he knew our names. Uh-huh. And they'd lift us up to sit on the truck next to Santa. And he'd lean down and listen to everything you wanted, and then he would reach into that sack of his and pull out the net stocking filled with that hard Christmas candy that was all stuck together. (laughs) But every kid got one, and he knew every kid's name. And uh, those, you know, those moments, those times are just embedded in your memory growing up, and you, you go back to those if I can digress slightly, I, uh, one of the things I've learned about doing a Christmas Carol for 50 years is that when we think about Christmas, we tend to think about Christmas pasts mm-hmm. because we're too busy living the present and we have no claim on the future. 
So at Christmas time, we tend in our hearts and minds to go back to the past. Mm-hmm. When we do that, we're thinking about times that are that no longer exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in many cases, we're thinking about loved ones sure. who yeah. are not with us anymore. That's well put. So Christmas time, without us sometimes realizing it, is uh, bittersweet. Mm-hmm. People call it the Christmas blues. Oh, sure. And we don't know why we're feeling that that glass is less than full mm-hmm. and why we are feeling a little depressed over the holidays. But that's the reason. And I think sometimes... If you if you're able to go to see a play like A Christmas Carol, or to see Handel's Messiah, or to see The Nutcracker, or to sit at home and watch Charlie Brown's Christmas, sure. for goodness sakes, and shed a few tears, and laugh, what you're doing is you're blowing some of the carbon out of the pipes, mm-hmm. you know, and you're kind of clearing your heart and your soul out, and you're more capable and ready to celebrate the holidays when you do that. And that's what we try to do in our production of Christmas Carol. We take a lot of liberties with Charles Dickens. Uh, We add political humor, Mm -hmm. uh, topical humor. Um, But at the end, we treat those little moments, we call them the warm, fuzzy moments. We treat those very carefully. Um, And you will laugh a lot in the show, but you will shed a few tears. And when you walk out of the theater— you're going to feel better than you did when you walked in. And that's, I think, the key to being ready to really celebrate the season. Right. So that would be my advice to anybody um, is give vent to that bittersweet quality that you feel because it's a very real thing. Sure. Um, I mean, Charlie Schultz in, through Peanuts said there is such a thing as good grief. And we can oh, have yeah. good grief around the holidays. Sure. And clear those pipes out. The other thing I've found out, too, is sometimes on Christmas morning, you're going to see adults sitting on the sofa, watching the kids on the floor around the Christmas tree, tearing up on those presents and having such a good time. And if you look behind the smiles of the adults, you're going to see just a tinge of sadness there because deep in our hearts as adults, we want to be down on that floor (laughs) opening those presents one more time. But that distance... From that sofa to the floor is one of the longest and most challenging distances you'll ever move in your life, <laughs> but do it. Right. There's nothing stopping you from sitting down on that floor with the kids and changing your point of view, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, sure. Uh, put, get down on the level of a kid again. You can do it because I think inside of all of us, there's a child, uh, that inner child that sure. you know you read about. And I think around the holidays, that inner child wants to come out and play. And we have to give vent to that. We have to allow that child to come out and, you know, be kids again. I think, you know, it's like I said, it's a a change of of point of view. In the movie E.T., when uh, right at the beginning, when the rocket ship is taking off and leaving Mm E.T., and he's running around the forest and them. He's, he's left alone, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden the SUVs arrive, and these guys get out with flashlights. There's one uh, scientist who walks towards the camera with his flashlight. When I speak to schools, to school kids, I will always ask this question. What do you see? 
when that man approaches the camera with his flashlight. The kids know. They raise their hand. I know. What is it? Belt buckles, Uh car keys. I go, yes. Uh But you know what's incredible about that? Steven Spielberg, who directed that movie, took the camera, which is generally placed on an adult Mm -hmm. eye level, and he dropped it down right. to the eye level, to the point of view of a kid. Yeah, the child, yeah. Yes, so you're right. seeing the world through a child's eyes. So you will accept the fact that that little plastic puppet uh-huh. is alive. That's right. That's E.T., man. He's going to fly. That's what we're all <laughs> yeah. just praying for at the end, make him yeah. fly, E.T. So that's what I mean. And it's a it was a brilliant move on Spielberg's part. To change the point of view of that camera so you could see that whole movie through the eyes of a child. See the holidays the same way. You know, get down on that floor with the kids. You'll be glad you did. Yeah. Well, you have a gift, obviously, for creating, you know, powerful uh, scenes in in people's minds. And I I think some of it comes out of, you know, the scene you created here in this room about Enfield and then uh, and then and then Spielberg's scene. Talk about the process of or harken back to when you created, uh, you know, this production back in the 70s. I mean, I remember seeing it sitting Indian style on the floor. I guess I can't say Indian style anymore, but sit, sitting crisscross applesauce <laughs> on the floor of Outer Root Elementary School, um, you know, when I, I was probably seven, you know, and, and, you know, you'd have been a few years older, but not 12. Too, not I too, was yeah, 12. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 you, but it was basically like a one man show at that point almost. Yeah, it kind of was. Uh-huh. Um, when we, First open a Christmas uh-huh. Carol, Gerald Ford was president. Mm-hmm. He fell down a lot. I remember that. Uh-huh. Um, As did Chevy Chase. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and um, most of the theaters, if not all of the theaters in the city of Raleigh, closed during the holidays. Uh-huh. And I thought that was strange because families want to spend time together during the holiday season. So I thought, well, gosh, we, we need to open the doors of our theater and, and invite people in. We had just done a, a season of Shakespeare. We had done Romeo and Juliet. We had done Taming of the Shrew. And we got to the holiday season. And, of course, Shakespeare hadn't penned a, a, a Christmas play. Mm-hmm. So Twelfth night. <laughs> well, yeah, that was smidgens. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, We could have set yeah. Macbeth you know, right, around a Christmas right, right, tree. Right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> Let me interrupt one second. Were you already director or what would become director of, of – Theater in the Park at that point? Yes. It was actually, when I took over, it was the Children's Theater uh-huh. of Raleigh. Right. It was founded in 1947. Mm-hmm. What did Oldest, the Raleigh Little Theater, was it called the Raleigh Little Theater at one time? Or? Little Theater was separate. Okay. okay. And this was, a, a, of course, the Little Theater was the community theater. Right. Uh, children's Theater was the Children's Theater. And when I stepped in and and was asked to take over, I told them that I wanted to change the focus of the theater. I wanted it to be a family-oriented theater. It had become at that time a babysitting service. Uh-huh. Oh. Moms and dads would drop the kids off, mm-hmm. pick them up. And I thought, well, no, you want mom and dad uh-huh. to come in because when they do that, they're demonstrating to the kids that the arts or the performing arts are important. Are important. Right. They yeah. want to be part of it. They want to spend time there too. We used to have a mascot called Gabby Gander. It was some poor mother dressed up in a goose outfit <laughs> again. And Gabby would walk down the aisles and remind the kids to be quiet and to be nice. When they, and I said, no, no, get rid of that gander. Uh-huh. I said, 
If we're not entertaining them, let them scream and yell. Let them throw things at us <laughs> right. because they're the purest audience you'll ever play to. Yeah, that's uh-huh. true. So when we got to the holiday season, um, I remembered when I left Enfield and um, <laughs> my guidance counselor came to me one day and he said, David, you need to be with other crazy people like yourself. <laughs> and I said, okay. He said, well, I think there's a place you can go to. Yeah, it's Wake County. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was afraid he was going to say Dick's. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. right. Um, he said there's a place called Governor's School. Uh-huh. You can go there in the summer and uh, just get out of town. It'll be good for you. So I said, well, how do you, how do you get in? He said, well, you have to audition. There were two books in our school library, two two theater books. One was Archibald McLeish's play J.B., which is based on the Book of Job. Mm-hmm. The other was the best plays of 1947. I took those two the year books. year of your birth. Out. Yes, right. yes. Uh-huh. I took those two books out. I called a, uh, an audition piece. I auditioned to get into governor's school. To my shock, I was accepted. And uh, I went to governor's school. While I was there, this Italian gentleman came and spoke to us. His name was Vittorio Giannini. He was the first chancellor of this brand-new school that was opening in Winston-Salem in 1965, my, uh, my senior year in high school. And it was the North Carolina School of the Arts. Oh, wow. This is the only school of its kind in the Western Hemisphere that taught dance, music, drama, and academics under the same roof. And I said, well, how do I, how do I get into that? Uh-huh. And he said, well, you got to audition. Well, I took the same audition piece. I went and auditioned. There was this beautiful man sitting behind the desk auditioning me. I later found out his name was Sidney Blackmer, a well-known actor on Broadway and in the movies. In fact, in Rosemary's Baby, Sidney plays Ruth Gordon's husband, hmm. the warlock. Ah, really? Yeah. And uh, he was in Little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson. He's in a, a lot of movies. Um, and uh, he stood up after I did my audition, and he said, young man, that was very good. But, of course, you know, you played defiance on the wrong foot. Oh, and I gosh. looked at him, and I was going, oh, my gosh, there's a right and wrong foot for defiance. <laughs> so I, I just, as quickly as I could, I mustered my defense, and I said, well, Mr. Blackmer, I'm, I'm a high school student, so I'm not exactly confident. In my in my defiance uh-huh. yet, so that's why I played it kind of on the back foot. Uh-huh. And he looked at me for a couple of seconds, and he said, "That was good." <laughs> good and so I knew that. he knew I had right. just pulled that up. Right, right. Yeah. But I got back to Enfield, where I was a future farmer of America. We all took vocational agriculture. Uh-huh. That was what you did. It right. wasn't by choice. The girls could ho- took home ec. The guys took vocational ag. Those who weren't sure took both, mm-hmm. uh, just to cover the right, bases. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and um, so I was in vocational agriculture one day, and uh, the principal came on the speaker, and he said, David Wood, will you come to the office, please? And right away you go, oh, gosh, what does he know? Uh, you know, he's found out something. Right. So I walked over to the main building. I was walking down this long hallway to get to the principal's office, and I looked all the way down, and my mother was standing there. And I thought, oh, this is bad. <laughs> I, by the time I got to mom, I had the blindfold on and was smoking the last cigarette. You know, <laughs> yeah, I was sure. like, no. I looked up at her, and I said, mom, what's wrong? And she said, nothing. 
She said, you've been accepted at the North Carolina School of the Arts. This is the last time I'll see you walk down this hallway. And I just went, wow. I got back to vocational ag. I sat down next to my best friend. He said, what happened? And I said, I've been accepted at School of the Arts. And he said, what's that? I said, I don't know, (laughs) but it's going to be better than vocational (laughs) agriculture. And it changed my life. Sure. Yeah. I saw... Uh, and this, I know I'm going around my elbow to get to my thumb here, but um, while I was a student there, the second year of the school, um, they premiered the Nutcracker Ballet, uh-huh. and I went to see it. Uh, I had never seen a ballet before. Mm-hmm. You're from Halifax County. Sure. Taxidermy is fine art, right. you know. <laughs> and, uh, I, when the curtain came down after the ballet, I couldn't stand. I couldn't get to my feet. I was just blown away mm-hmm. by what I had seen. In the story, in the act one of the Nutcracker, there's a Christmas party, and the kids at the Christmas party are given gifts. The girls get a doll. The little boys got a trumpet or a drum, right. and they were delirious with right. joy. Right. And I, all I could do was sit there and go, they're going ape over one present. Right. And I thought, how wonderful that is. There's not piles of junk under the tree. There's one present, and they're they're delirious. And I knew somehow I wanted to be a part of a show that left people feeling like that Uh when the curtain came down. So now back to the story. We're we're, um, two plays into Shakespeare, and we're in the Christmas season. So I said, tell you what, let's go to the second best English author. Charles Dickens, uh-huh. let's do a Christmas carol. It's perfect for the season. I said, get out the book. Let's copy down all the lines we can, all the dialogue we can use. And I think people would be surprised at how much actually comes from Dickens' novel. Right. Um, so that's what we did. I knew that I wanted to, to put it on in the style of the period with the beautiful costumes and the set. I... Um, I also wanted Christmas present not to be scary. Right. I didn't want to frighten the kids. Mm-hmm. So I decided to make him a befuddled undertaker. Uh-huh. And every year I tell the poor actor who plays that part, mm-hmm. I said, you got the hardest job in the show uh-huh. because you are death. Right. And right. there's nothing funny about death. Yeah. But if we can make people laugh at death, we've done a big service right. to everybody. Right. So that's what we do during the during the show. Um, I also knew that I wanted Scrooge to carry a teddy bear in Act 2 when he went to bed because I wanted the kids to identify with him. I wanted them to understand he was just a big kid who was afraid of the dark, just Uh like they uh are. So to me, the key was getting as many people to identify with Scrooge as possible because if you can identify with him, then you can make the transformation with him. Right. And at the end of the play, you have transformed yourself into a better person than you were right. when you walked into the theater. And to me, that's what the show's about, the possibility of change, Redemption. the possibility of getting right. transforming into something better. So uh, we opened the theater doors. We put the play on. Uh, we had to sell the seat cushions off the sofas in the <laughs> lobby on opening night. Uh, it was amazing. We sold out. Um, we were playing 17 performances in the theater, and our seating capacity was uh, 200, 240. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
So after three years, I said, guys, let's let's move down to Memorial Auditorium with 2,000 seats. We can play a weekend and play to as many people. So we went down to Memorial Auditorium, which was shut up, locked down uh-huh. during that period of time. We asked the city manager for a key uh-huh. to get into Memorial Auditorium. He couldn't find it. Gosh. That place was used only for graduation ceremonies and wrestling matches. Wow. Right. That's and right. so Gosh. the president of our board of directors, Deanne Jones, God bless her. To this day, I don't know why she had them, but she had a pair of bolt cutters in her trunk. And we got the bolt cutters out and cut the chain off of the door that held Memorial Auditorium uh-huh. closed. Uh-huh. And when that door opened, a rat as big as a beagle dog <laughs> ran by. But I looked into this dark cavern space uh-huh. and I said, this is it's perfect. a theater. It's yeah. home. Yeah. So um, we went down and, and started taking shows into Memorial. And when Christmas time came, I said, well, let's move the show there. So IBM stepped in and bought seven performances, additional performances, from the performances that we were regularly Uh doing. So we were up to 17 performances in Memorial before we knew it. And we were exhausted all over (laughs) again, but wonderfully so. So that's been the the tradition. Uh, Memorial Auditorium has been home for 50 years. We were out. Only one year when uh, they renovated Memorial, uh-huh. we went to the uh, Dean Smith Center uh-huh. and rented that. Wow. I don't remember that. Wow. Put yeah, a like Christmas it. carol on in there. I think our largest audience was uh, it was over twelve thousand wow. people right. one night, and there was no such thing as a pregnant pause. Man, I mean, we just barreled through right. that show, but it, that was phenomenal. When we walked out after the performance, it had snowed. Oh, wow. We had to find hotel rooms for the entire company hmm. in an hour. Oh, my God. Because we couldn't get back to Raleigh. Right, right. So we had to put up everybody, which was, it turned out to be a wonderful sure. Christmas celebration. I mean, we had the most fun uh, for a couple of days. Uh-huh. We stayed in, in uh, Durham and, uh, you know, just enjoyed the family, which we are. I've said this right. many years. We're not a cast, we're not a company, we are a family. Right, and that's the way we treat each other. We're huggers, uh-huh. you know. You walk into rehearsal, you're going to get a hug, probably, mm-hmm. and um, um, right. so that's it. In a, in a, you know, yeah. Well, it's I, I, I understand. I can appreciate the family aspect. My, of course, like it's full disclosure. My my daughter uh, was a longtime townsperson. Uh, I guess she was the. I mean, she's been all the, the, the rat catcher's family, the, uh, <laughs> yes. the, 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 what's it, the butcher's family, or the rich person's family, the poor, I mean, they've, they've got, you know, I guess what, are there five, four, five, four, oh, five there, families? There yeah. are at least a dozen yeah, families. Yeah, right. So, and it, it, it has been a part of our, you know, tradition. And, and of course, you know, about this time every year, I, I begin working David Wood quotes into virtually every conversation yeah. I have, just um, completely subconsciously, just all, all the little, <laughs> Uh, goofy quotes that that come out of the play. Um, even when we were texting the other day, it was "guess say convenient." Guess <laughs> say convenient. Yeah. Yep. And there's a phrase that uh, uh, someone recently told me they use in their home. It's not mine. It's actually Dickens. But uh, 
when Scrooge sees Marley, he says, you're just a bit of undigested potato. That's right, yeah. And I was shocked to learn that was, that was actually Yes, Dickens. from the book. And, uh, but they say in our family, whenever somebody is a little out of sorts, uh-huh. we'll look at them and say, that's a bit of undigested <laughs> potato. And it tends to bring them back around, yeah, you know? Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's great. And, and I, it's funny. I was just thinking, I was listening to you thinking about, uh, about Dickens. And I mean, I guess, you know, Shakespeare did Twelfth Night, but it wasn't really a Christmas play. It just no. happened at that time of year. And because really, as far as I, I mean, I guess what I read and listening to you, I mean, Dickens sort of reinvented or, or invented our tr- current Christmas tradition in a lot of ways. That's true. There were no Christmas cards when the, that book came out. Christmas was basically a day off work. Right. Um, and there were no Christmas trees. Mm-hmm. So uh, he knew he had to write a book, and it had to be a success. Right. He was in debt up to his eyeballs. He had a big family to take care of. He didn't know where this book was going to come from. And what he started doing was taking walks in Manchester, England, and in London. He would walk as much as 20 miles a night. Hmm. Wow. And he would stop to look into windows. And time after time, he would see families gathered together around the hearth, the mother cooking, uh, the father reading, the children playing in front of the fire. And the feeling of family and home and hearth became a real thing to him. And he got the germ of this idea. He started to write. He called it a ghost story Mm -hmm. because of the ghosts in the story. And uh, it came out on Christmas Day. It sold, I want to say, 6,000 copies on Christmas Day Uh alone. And became an instant success. I think within a matter of a couple of years, they had pirated the story to the first stage adaptation. Uh And he ended up, Dickens ended up going uh, on tours. Uh, Certainly he came to the United States and he would do readings of the Uh book and he would just be exhausted. In fact, the last tour is probably what led to his death because he just was exhausted. but yes, it 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 reinvigorated uh, the celebration of Christmas, and they said w- once the book was completed, Dickens would laugh and cry at the mention of the word Christmas. Uh-huh. It just infused him. His brother uh, was sickly, lame, and his brother was Tiny Fred. Oh wow! So tiny fred became tiny tim yeah. fred became the nephew in uh-huh. the book so what dickens was doing was pulling from his own sure. past and purging i think uh, uh some of the sadness in his life uh he was uh, uh in boarding school when he was young and young scrooge in the book is in boarding school and he thinks he's left there he mm-hmm. doesn't think he's going home and his sister arrives and says you're coming home for the holidays so i think what dickens did is pretty amazing before psychology uh told us what we had to do to kind of go in and mm-hmm. purge ourselves uh, of our past, um, and if I may, it sounds a lot like what you did with yes. your, with your. Because I, I mean, I just ha- knowing each other. I mean, I know that you lost your father at a young age, and there's yep. a lot of that that appears in the play. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that makes it real. Um, and 
I think what what Dickens did is he he went back because the first ghost he meets after Marley is past. Mm-hmm. You have to go back to that hurt child, right? That each of us has inside of us. Some somewhere along the line, all of us got hurt, and that hurt child lives inside of us. So you have to go back and you have to heal that hurt child, and then you have to move into the present and fully occupy the moment, live in the moment, and b- because you're able to do that. Like Scrooge, you can look into the grave. We can. We all gonna die. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't like to think right. about it. Date of death. Yeah, date of death. <laughs> <laughs> Number twenty two calls a timeout on the field. Um, but you have the courage to do it, having accomplished past and present. So I think Dickens was was brilliant in, in the way he wrote that and the symbolism behind it. Um, you're right. My father died when I was 12. The last time I saw him, he came into the bedroom to tuck me in and and tell me good night. And it was the last time I saw him. And so when I wrote the play, um, Terry Mann, uh, Broadway star, who was a director of our children's theater at the time, was there. J.K. Farrell, um, w- who was our Jacob Marley, was at the house. It was late at night. And I... Everything had been written, but I said, I want to write a lullaby for Bob Cratchit to sing to Tiny Tim when he tucks him into bed Hmm. because I want it to be the words I never heard. Mm -hmm. And my dad's picture was hanging on the wall right over the piano, and I just looked up at him and I started to write. One day, my son, when you are grown, you will remember all the happy times you and your dad have known. And on the day that you do, you'll know somehow I'm remembering, too, all my happy times with you. It just flowed. And uh, when we finished, we had two bottles of cold duck in the house. <laughs> we <laughs> drank duck. both of nice. them. Cold duck. Nice. Oh, I mean... But we were, you know, we were laughing, we were crying, we called everybody we knew. You have to hear this song. I mean, I fight so hard every year to get through that scene. <laughs> I mean, it just takes you down. Well, it's it's I, so beautiful. everybody everybody has that moment. Everybody knows that moment. And I tell the lighting director every year, turn the lights out on me, because Christmas present, Jacob Marley and I are sitting on a bed on one side of the stage, Tiny Tim and Bob Cratchit are in the bedroom on the other side of the stage. And so I say, just turn the lights out on me. I don't want anybody watching me. And it's my time. I can look into the audience if I choose to do that. And one year I saw father, son, and grandson sitting together. And during that song, I saw the grandfather reach out and put his hand on the shoulder of his son. And then I saw them both reach in and touch that that child, that grandchild. And I thought to myself, that's Christmas. That's Christmas. You know, uh, it was the best gift I got that year because I said, if we understand the priceless gift we have when we can touch it and it's there in the world with us, then we've really, we've really done it. Um, and it's my visit with my dad every night. So yeah. it's a little bittersweet for me. The tears come very easily. And I go back. I'm that child sure. in the bed. And that's my dad, uh, Bob Cratchit, tucking me in. And recently now, um, my oldest son, Ira, who will take over the role of Scrooge uh, after I finish this year, he stands in the wings. 
Uh-huh. So I can look past Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim and see my oldest son oh, looking great. back at me. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I was. It's a. It's. Uh, I was about to ask you. I mean, it's. I think about you know your relationship with your dad during the play, but but you know, but obviously, you know, you and your son have a, a special. Uh, this has got to be special for you guys. Um, and but I'm sure it's been you know fraught with with uh, peril and stress as uh-huh. well as as you as you hand off this. Uh, this gem, uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be stressful to hand it off to anybody, but he's, and he's got to be feeling pressure. Um, you know, just talk about the, you know, sort of the, the idea of, of succession here. I mean, it's, it's been, you know, we've had the, the show succession and all the, the stuff that comes along with it, but they talk about, talk about the process of, of, you know, gifting this or, or, you know, he's obviously earned it, but talk about the process of, of the transition. Well, um, I'm, uh, Looking at 77 years, I uh, started this play when I was in my 20s. Wow. Um, so it's a time in my life when I am feeling the cold breath of mortality. Mm. And I think we're, you know, uh, we're not very wise if we don't recognize that we're closer to the end uh-huh. than the beginning. I sat down recently with an attorney and drew up my, you know, last will and uh i said this is what i would like uh to happen with a christmas Mm -hmm. carol uh i think it's got a life beyond me my oldest son says yes dad i want to take take over the role and maybe i'll you know add another 50 years to the legacy my daughter evan said dad i'm i'm right there Uh we'll do everything we can to keep it going and my 11 year old said dad when when can I step in as Scrooge? And I said, well, give your brother time. But I told Ira, I said, listen, don't walk down the stairs in front of him, okay? That's right. <laughs> he may get a little eager. <laughs> but I think, you know, as as much as you sit down and you put your – you want to make things easy on those you leave behind. So, yes, you take care of your responsibilities and uh, – um, I just said, look, I, I cremate me. You know, I've already said to the kids, take a, you, you all get a few of my ashes. Uh-huh. Go travel the world, and when you get to a spot that you really love, leave me there. Leave me a, a little uh-huh. bit there. I've already told Evan we were in uh, Notre Dame together, and I said, oh, please, when the time comes, will you sprinkle a few dad's ashes uh-huh. here in Notre Dame? So now she's got to wait for it to reopen again, but. Uh-huh. Um, I said, yes, that to me, then that encourages them to go out into the world uh-huh. and travel and, and take a little bit of me with them when they go. Um, take a bit of magic. Take a bit of magic. Uh-huh. I think, you know, well, death is a very real thing. To me, I think it's going to be an amazing transition. Mm-hmm. I think there is something beyond. I think uh, I've seen enough and experienced enough in my life to believe that death is not the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can get to that point where we actually are thinking of that transition as a an amazing adventure, uh, the fear is gone. Uh-huh. And you don't want to live with fear, even uh-huh. about death. And you've got to be brave enough in business ventures sometimes to step in and do something that hasn't been done before. Um and that's you know that's that's what we did with the Christmas Carol. We stepped into a spot and filled a vacancy, uh, 
You know, nobody was doing what we wanted to do. And that, I think, guaranteed success. People said, did you realize it would have a life of 50 years? And I said, I don't know that I put a time on sure. it, but I knew it was going to survive right. because there was something special about it. Someone said once, when work and love join together, uh-huh. expect a miracle. Uh-huh. And I believe that. Uh, we work hard to put the show on. A, yeah, there is a lot of stress uh, I man, I walked out on that stage with a 103 fever, mm-hmm. with a pinched nerve. Uh, but when you walk out of the darkness in the wings into that magical light on the stage, all of that stuff just sure. just melts, yeah. and you're there feeling loved by 2,700 people out front, uh, which is a, a, an amazing feeling. And there's a point in our show. When Scrooge has his change of heart, Tiny Tim sings Noel. Right. And then Tiny Tim reaches his hand out to Scrooge to come come and right. join him. And it's all silent. Um, after he sings, he reaches his hand out. Scrooge decides to accept the invitation. He walks over, takes Tiny Tim's hand, looks at Tim, and then looks out at the audience. That is Christmas. I have found in 50 years that moment always is electric because I think the audience understands that they've laughed a lot, they've had fun with the show, and now things are just getting ready to do a 180, mm-hmm. and they're all going to shed a few tears, uh, happy tears. Sure, um, It's the coda. It's the end of the music, um, and Scrooge sings... Uh, the verse, uh, Noel, <clears throat> and <clears throat> he can't get through it, and he starts to weep, and then everybody on stage takes a step forward, and they begin to sing, and it just lifts yeah, the no, roof it does. off, it's, it's and, and we end with joy to the world, and that's it, man. I mean, yeah. everybody's happy, and um, we hope that the audience feels that, and I, I believe they do. Sure they do. And, and we just touched on one thing I, I wanted to hit before we close is, is the music is is such a huge part of the production, and you wrote that. I mean, I, I just find yeah. that astounding. Yeah. That, well, it's very uh-huh. simple. I just I knew it, it had to be music that you could hum when you walked out. Uh-huh. So it's not Soundheim by any stretch uh-huh. of the imagination. Right. But I'm very pleased with it. And, um, you know, people say, yeah, I hum. I find myself humming it. Uh, You know, sometimes throughout the year we have CDs of the music and people, as soon as the Thanksgiving dishes are washed and put away, people Mm -hmm. bring it out. That's right. And some people say they bring it out in the summertime. We had a kid who was in the show and he joined the Army. He was uh, flying helicopters. And uh, he was stationed in South Korea. And he said, David, one of the things that we do is we fly the helicopters along the parallel line. Uh, And he said, I ended up being assigned Christmas morning. Uh I was flying my helicopter. And he said, and we have speakers on the helicopters. And he said, usually we blare rock and roll Uh music. Just to let North Korea know we're here. He said that Christmas morning I had that CD. He said, I... Plugged it in. He said, so North Korea has heard a Christmas carol. <laughs> so apocalypse <laughs> now meets a Christmas carol. <laughs> yes, yes. So there, there's stories like that that have come back to us in 50 years. I do have one which kind of, to me, encap- encapsulates 
what the show and any good show can mean to people. I had a phone call one year from a family who said, we've got a dear friend from Charlotte, North Carolina, who's come to Raleigh. She's just got a horrible diagnosis, terminal cancer. She's three months. They've given her three months. We want to bring her to the show tonight. Cheer her up a little bit. And I said, well, tell you what, we go downstairs to a room in Memorial Auditorium and warm up. We sing and mm-hmm. vocalize. Why don't you bring her down and and let her just join in with us? So I, of course, told the cast who was coming. Her name was Charlotte, by the way. And um, I told them why she was coming. So while we were down there warming up, the doors opened, and she walked in, and it was a love feast. Uh-huh. These kids, as young as four years old in the show and on up to 70s, 80s, just came around that woman, hugged her, loved her. She sang with us and uh, spent 30 minutes at least. And then we were ready to go up and go on the stage. So she was getting ready to leave. To this day, I don't know what possessed me to say. But I called out and I said, Charlotte, will we see you next year? And she stopped in the doorway and looked at me like I had lost my mind. And then I saw something in her face change in her eyes. And she looked at me and she said, okay, that's a deal. I will see you next year. That woman made it for three years. She came back to that show, and she'd come down the stairs and meet and greet, and wow. it was so amazing. The th- and I would ask her every year, will we see you next year? It was always the affirmative. The third year, as she left, I said, um, will we see you next year, Charlotte? And she looked at me, and she said, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And I knew we wouldn't. Right, right. But we had three years. Three months had turned into three years. So that show became a watershed. It, it became a landmark for her, to, a goal uh-huh. to reach every year. And that's that's a very humbling thing to think about. And it does put a responsibility on all of us because we want that show to be something like that for people who need it. Um, and, and and Christmas is about meeting needs, I think, right. too. So when you playing to twenty seven hundred people, it's a lot of needy folks, yeah. mm-hmm. and you want to fill every heart you can. And when you know you've done it, when you get that electrified silence right before Scrooge sings Noel, and you feel that love and the standing ovations and the cheers. And you walk out after all of that dies away. There is something sacred about a quiet theater after a performance because the love, the magic, whatever, is still, it Mm -hmm. still infuses that space. And I love nothing more than before I, I leave to walk is to walk out on that stage and the ether reserved uh-huh. for God is still there, <laughs> and you can you can still be a part of it. And you walk off, get in your car, drive home, and man, when you put your head down on your pillow at night, you're justified. You feel good. That's fantastic because it, it's been a blessing. And the gift is always to the giver. Right. People say, you know, well, oh, that's got to be a hard, so hard for you every year, and I go, no, you don't understand. Right. It's the most selfish thing I do every year. <laughs> Stand on that stage and be loved by so many people and to try to give that love back. Right. That's when peace on earth, goodwill becomes more than just a song. Absolutely. 50 years. 
Yeah. Amazing. 50 years. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can't, crazy. I can't wait to go this year. I know. I was, I was thinking, I've seen, I've been to the, gosh, I've been to at least three or four times over the last 30 years, I guess. And um, I don't know. It's just a real honor to have you. I, one thing I was thinking of when you were talking about, you know, you grew up in a, in a somewhat rural community in, in Enfield and um, you t- said you went to governor school. I actually went to governor school. All right. And, uh, but, and, but, you know, it's funny. I've been in finance my whole life and, and worked in the wealth management business. But, um, I went for, for voice, for, uh, music and, uh, and, um, and I loved it. So it was a part of my life. And, and I think about how much it enriched my life. And I, I would love to hear your, your thoughts or your comments on, especially for parents that have, yeah, you know, we, we, we are wealth managers and we are, Life, we help people. We're life planners, actually, too, with our, with our clients. We're very holistic in what we do. But um, I think people are limiting themselves if they don't expose themselves to the arts and and things of that nature. I would love to hear your your thoughts on just what just just a sprinkle of getting involved in your local community theater or your local choirs and things of things of that. How it can enrich somebody's life, and just if you just could talk about that a little bit, I'd love to hear. Well, I think think a a very important thing for parents to do today is to teach their kids to accept the differences in other children. Um, All of my kids, to some degree, as I did, had to go through a really tough time because I would rather practice uh, the piano Mm -hmm. than football. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're called a lot of names. Yeah. Uh, you're different and odd in a very derogatory sense. And you're made to feel that way by your peers and sometimes by the parents of those kids that you play with. Um, and Helen Hayes said we lose some of our greatest talent along the way because they can't make it through. They fall by the wayside because of that. Vittorio Giannini, who I mentioned before, is the first chancellor of School of the Arts, said there's nothing more important than getting these young children together with other kids who share their same passion and love for yeah. the arts because then they know they are different, yes, but not in a derogatory sense. They are very special children, and you want them to be together. So my my advice to parents of kids today is please teach them to accept the differences in their friends. Race, color, creed, religion, nationality. It's like the ghost of Christmas present says, we're all one family on a globe that grows smaller every day. Um, I went out for sports in, in, in high school. Um, I was not ter- terrifically successful. Uh, so I uh, became, my mother was a nurse, I became the, the, tra- the trainer uh, which meant that I would take care of the bruises and, and mm-hmm. scrapes and bandage the guys up on the football field. I loved it. And one day walking uh, in after football practice, heading back to the locker room, we passed the dummy rack. Anybody familiar with practicing football knows that the dummies hung on the rack are for tackling. You, you practice tackling mm-hmm. these dummies. 
Well, as we walked by, there was an empty space on the dummy rack, and all of a sudden they grabbed me, turned me upside down, <laughs> tied my ankles together, and hoisted me over the dummy rack. So there I was hanging upside down doing my best Jerry Lewis imitation because I figured at a very young age, if I did Jerry Lewis, <laughs> yeah. the bullies wouldn't beat me up. They'd be yeah, yeah. too busy laughing. Yeah. So I was doing Jerry Lewis, but something happened to me. And I set off, and maybe it was the blood running to my brain for the first time in my life. But I made a decision hanging there upside down on that dummy rack that when they let me down, they would never laugh at me again. They would laugh with me, Uh and I would control it. But they would respect my ability to recite the to be or not to be speech from Hamlet Mm -hmm. as much as I respected the quarterback's ability to throw a pass and and score a touchdown in a football game. And that changed my life because you you have to claim your space. And particularly when I went to the School of the Arts that I found a square foot of the universe that belonged to me. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to own this square because I've gone through hell to get here and I've been made fun of and yeah. no more. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So please be kind to these kids who seem different and odd um, because now, unfortunately, these kids who are tortured during their school years mm-hmm. pick up AR 15s. Right. And that's the way they equalize. Mm-hmm. No. You, you know, what I, I think sometimes what would have happened to so many people if they had just gotten a, a hug Outlet from their somewhere. dads mm-hmm. or their moms. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry, but I look at Donald Trump and I look <laughs> at pictures of him and his dad and I wonder how many times did that dad hug Don mm. Trump needed that that hug. I think he'd be a different man today. And I look at all of these people throughout history who have what gone to the dark side. I don't. Uh-huh. But I th- I just think, man, what what would a few hugs have meant to them in their lives if Adolf Hitler had had gotten some kind of success if if somebody had looked at his watercolor paintings and said they're good yeah, yeah. Right. whoa can you right. imagine yeah. i mean what what might have changed so do n- never underestimate what the power of a hug can be or or a a compliment or encouragement. Yes, yeah, yeah, just yes. The, the, that's water in the desert yeah, to so yeah. many mm-hmm. so many people today it's not, you know, it's not a mystery. We all know we're living in a, a really tough time. These are dark times right now. And there's a lot on the line. And we've dug trenches in, and it's us against them. And it's uh, so many battle lines have been drawn. And it's time to listen to each other, to come together as a family. You don't have to be a rocket uh-huh. scientist to tell us how what our differences are, uh-huh. they slap us in the face every morning uh-huh. when we walk out. But what what we have to do is find the commonalities, find us, find out how many people grew up in that 
small town. Mm-hmm. How many share those same memories mm-hmm. that we have? Mm-hmm. That's what you need to sit down at Thanksgiving and Christmas and talk about, not necessarily politics. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go there, okay, but go there with some kind of love and understanding. Um, that's, you know, that's the message yeah. of Christmas, peace, peace on earth. Uh, how do we how do we get it? Well, we have to work for it every minute of every day of our lives. End of sermon. <laughs> I, I would I would just say that uh, thanks to you, uh, people really are saying Merry Christmas again. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Thank you, Bert. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming in. This has been a real treat for for Bill and me. Yeah, and, we could, we could talk for. I mean, we I mean, you've got a. There's so many things that you you've. Your your resume is unbelievable, and 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 your your the success of your daughter, she's a big movie star and all that good stuff. I mean, there's just so many things we could cover with you. But she's coming home, by the um, way, for our reunion performance. Um, all of the former cast members have been invited back to Memorial for a reunion performance on December the 10th oh, in great. Raleigh's Memorial Auditorium. Um, and right at the end of the show, before Scrooge sings the last Noel. We stopped the show, and I just look out, and I said, we'd like to invite all former family members oh, to wonderful. join us on stage. This year, there'll be 200. Wow. They'll all come up on stage, and once they're there, then we will. I will sing Noel, and they will join in because they all know the yeah, words, and sure. they've all been blocked. And when that happened, the last time it happened for the 40th anniversary, the roof came off of the building. Mm-hmm. It was just incredible. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Some people have said, has it hit you yet that this is your last year? And I said, no, it hasn't. Um, we're too busy getting the show up, you know, and, and planning for it. I think, again, it will hit me when the curtain comes down for the last time. But like I said, it's that moment when everybody's gone, you walk out on the stage. And this year will be 50 years, man, you know, they've come and gone in a, in a wink of an eye. And I always take the drive from Durham because our last show is at the Durham mm-hmm. Performing Arts Center. We play in Durham and Raleigh. And I always tell my, my wife and my youngest son, you guys take the other car. I'm, I drive uh-huh. home by right. myself because that 20 or 30 minutes with a little Christmas music on the radio is my time to make the transition mm-hmm. and to take a breath and know that I can go in. I got a week before Christmas with the family. I'm going to build a fire, cuddle on the sofa with the beagle and the cat and yeah. my son and my wife and just share and, and just be thankful for another Christmas, for having those people that I love still in the world, still around me, still where I can reach out and touch them and celebrate those gifts. So that's what I'm looking forward to. That's wonderful. David, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas and bye humbug. (laughs) (laughs) Merry Christmas, David. We really appreciate you coming to share with us. We really do. My honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trust Company Talks. These opinions are intended as entertainment. Any opinions expressed on this podcast by Bill Noble, Burke Coons, or anyone else are not necessarily those of Trust Company of the South. There is no guarantee that these statements, opinions, or forecasts provided herein will prove to be accurate. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. These materials are not intended to be tax or legal advice. Readers are encouraged to consult their own legal tax and investment advisor before implementing any financial strategy.